You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Fully Loaded Chew is tobacco-free, long-cut, and pouches that gives you the same pack, dip, spit, and buzz that you're used to without tobacco. Fully Loaded Chew comes in nine flavors and is made with all food-grade ingredients and tobacco-free nicotine. To give us a try, head on over to FullyLoadedChew.com for a $1 can of chew with free shipping when you enter the code OUTDOOR1, O-U-T-D-O-O-R, and the number one. For more information on our product line, visit FullyLoadedChew.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Average Conservationist Podcast brought to you in partner with 2% for Conservation. 2% for Conservation's mission is to create an alliance of businesses and individuals that ensure the future of hunting and angling by committing their time and dollars to fish and wildlife. 1% of your time plus 1% of your money equals 2% for conservation. 2% helps businesses and people pair with conservation causes to support things that fit what they care about. Whether you're into fishing, hunting, or just getting outdoors, 2% can help you not only start giving back to wildlife, but get certified for it. Getting 2% certified means you've made the same commitment as popular brands like Sitka, Stone Glacier, and Seek Outside in giving at least 1% of your time and dollars back to wildlife. But it's not just for outdoor companies. Breweries, contractors, coffee roasters, and even piano repair companies have earned 2% certification and stand out as leaders in their community for doing so. Businesses that are committed to conservation deserve your business when you shop. Learn more about 2% for conservation at fishandwildlife.org. That's fishandwildlife.org. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Average Conservationist Podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. Today on the podcast, I am joined by Mark Haslam. And if you recall, um, anyone who's who's been around long enough uh, knows um, Mark was actually my first guest uh, that I had on the podcast uh, outside of Executive Director for 2% for Conservation, Jared Frazier. Um, so we're talking back in June 2020. Uh, of when I first sat down and talked to Mark and Mark and I have been in contact, um, you know, really ever since, uh, you know, we first had a chance to talk and meet a couple of years ago. Uh, but since then, uh, Mark has, has done a, a ton of cool stuff. Um, you know, kind of as it pertains to conservation and, you know, has, uh, really, uh, had some, some more opportunities to, you know, tell his conservation story uh, and pass on a lot of a lot of the uh, knowledge uh, that he has gained through uh, working on his farm uh, in South Carolina, 
And so today we get to really talk about, you know, what he's been up to for the past two years, um, some really cool projects uh, that he started, including Southeast Whitetail. Um, and we get into, uh, you know, some of the things that, that Mark really enjoys about deer hunting in particular and, um, you know, new hunter recruitment and why that's, uh, you know, so important for him. And also we get to talk about uh, a a mentored hunt uh, that him and his family were able to host uh, down on the farm there. And, you know, some of his big takeaways from that and, and what he really enjoyed about that uh, entire process and everything. So just a, a really uh, great conversation with Mark. Um, you know, Mark has, he has a lot of experience and knowledge uh, when it comes to, to managing property, um, you know, not only for whitetail, but uh, just for all species, uh, kind of particular and and really what um you know kind of the the formerly known as qdma practices uh that they're trying to implement there on their farm so episode 100 mark haslam from southeast whitetail uh enjoy guys uh today's episode is going to be brought to you by my good friends sammy and marshall over at wild rivers coffee at wild rivers coffee they're roasting in small batches so that they can ensure that your coffee arrives at its peak freshness uh wild rivers as you know is a proud partner of two percent for conservation and that's why with everything that they sell portions of those proceeds are being donated back to conservation organizations that are near and dear to them so head over to wildriverscoffeeco.com grab your fresh roasted beans uh super cool handmade mugs super cool merchandise a uh, ton of accessories for, uh, you know, brewing your own coffee, French press. Uh, they've got uh, pour over uh, accessories, all that good stuff. Um, subscribe now and you're going to save 10% off your order. Or if you use the promo code, this is all caps, fish underscore wildlife, you're going to save 15% off your order. So again, head over to wildriverscoffeeco.com. Mark Haslam, welcome back, man. Uh How's everything going down south there? Well, Marcus, uh, first, thanks for having me back on. It's been um, it's been a long time since, since I've um, talked to you. Yeah, at least yeah, this I way. Mean, <laughs> yeah, um, at least this way, right? I mean, it's uh, you know, with because this is the you know the 100th episode, and I started kind of when I, as I was approaching this and, and leading up to it, I started thinking about you know what would be a good guest to have on. And, you know, I'm kind of looking at previous guests, looking at, you know, guests I would like to get on. And sometimes with, uh, you know, guests I'd like to get on, there's probably a reason I haven't had them on yet. Scheduling, just hard to track down, things like that. And, you know, you were my, aside from Jared, and Jared's kind of in his own category, being the, you know, the executive director for 2%. And we've had him on, you know, maybe a handful of times uh, throughout the past couple of years. Um, but, you know, you were my first actual guest on the podcast. And, you know, since that time, you've done a bunch of, of, of different things um, kind of in the conservation space uh, on your own to, to promote hunting uh, and different habitat and conservation topics in the southeast there. So I was like, this would be a, a good chance to get Mark back on and kind of catch up and, and see what he's up to now. So, no, I'm glad that you were that you were open and, and willing to, to sit down with me again. Absolutely, I, I appreciate you having me back on, Marcus. And um, I, with that build up, I, I don't know if I can. <laughs> so, um, so fill the shoes that you need, but no, I, I think this is great. Yeah. So, how's turkey season going for you down there? 
Um, who turkey season? I would say it's been. Um, it's on one hand, it's been um, very uh, enjoyable and fun to, uh, as far as like the conservation side. You know, uh, working on population, working on the habitat. And on the other hand, on the hunting side, it's been extremely humbling, frustrating, defeating, um, everything like that. Whatever else synonym you can think of uh, to fit that. But our season ends uh, tomorrow, actually. Okay. It's the last day of the season. No, okay. um, but it's been good. What kind of bag limits do you guys have down there? So, um, in South Carolina, um, if you're a resident, you can kill three. And if you're a non-resident like me, I live in Georgia, you can kill two, uh, Georgia, I should know, but I really don't hunt turkeys much in Georgia. I haven't really in a while. Um, it's probably either two or three. Okay. Yeah. Michigan, we're just, uh, we're just a one bird state and the season for, for me, at least opened uh, last weekend, uh, but had some commitments, uh, wasn't able to get out. So we're recording this, uh, you know, in the morning here. And then uh, later this afternoon, I'll be heading to our property uh, and trying to hunt the weekend. We've had, we have a, a cell cam that we keep up kind of year round in, in a certain area that just tends to get a lot of traffic. And we've had a lot of, you know, the, the emails and stuff coming through with, with pictures, um, you know, for about the last two weeks. And then like Tuesday of this week, uh, things kind of dried up. So I'm a little curious to see, uh, what's in store when, when I actually am able to hit the woods tomorrow morning. Well, good luck. So, okay. So your season opens, it, 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 it just opened. Yeah. It just opened. And so when does it end? Uh, good question. I should know that. And the only re the reason I don't is because I know I really only have this weekend to hunt. Uh, it's a very short season <laughs> for me. It's probably, yeah, it's, it's two days worth of hunting that I get a chance to, to get in. So I need to make the most of it. Um, but I'm not sure if it, if it ends at probably the end like, of the month. Uh, I mean that, that seems right. So do y'all, are you still in snow right now? No, no. All of our snow is gone. Although, about a week ago, um, we went from like 70 degrees and then two days later, I think we had like three or four inches of snow on the ground. Uh, and then the very next day yeah. it was like in the fifties and then probably within 48 hours, all that snow was gone. But no, it's, uh, this weekend it's probably supposed to be, uh, low sixties, I would say and sunny. So it should be, be good. yeah, it should be, be a nice yeah. day, a uh, nice time to be in the woods for sure. Yeah. I, I like the one, I like the one Turkey uh, limit. I know a lot of hunters probably wouldn't like those changes, but, um, quite frankly, um, that's probably the way to go right now on some of these States lowering. So in South Carolina, I did mention that resident, you can shoot three non-resident, you can shoot two, but you can only shoot one bird, like the first handful of weeks of the season. So we open, uh, end of March. Um, and so you can only shoot one, like the first half of the season, just to okay. give, uh, more birds time to breed, before uh, they're killed, yeah, to help the population. I kind of like that idea. Uh, I think that's yeah, yeah. I think that's it's a smart strategy uh, to take. I mean, you, you have the bag limit, but you're also trying to give you know Mother Nature a chance to actually do its thing and not disrupt that too terribly much. You know, throughout the course of the season. Oh yeah, yeah. So as I kind of uh, 
mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, you've had a lot going on in the last two years. Um, you know, since we we last had a chance to to sit down and talk, um, where should we start? You want to start with Southeast Whitetail? Wherever you want to start. Yeah, let's yeah. do that. Tell me. Uh, you know, I'm I'm quite familiar with it, uh, but for those uh, that maybe are not, tell us about Southeast Whitetail and, and what you started there. Well, um, kind of a, just a long story short is that um, I've been using Instagram um, to really just um, really just for the hunting side of what I do in life and uh, management land land habitat side. I, I was um, um, just using Instagram to showcase, you know, what I do at the farm. And it's been a very great tool for me to network and get to the network in the hunting industry. And, um, and I had thought about this idea for a couple of years, um, to start a website, um, or some type of showcase for, uh, more of my content just beyond Instagram. Yeah. Um, but I just, you know, realized time constraints and, uh, but finally, uh, let's see, I started it. It was, uh, I launched it a year, like I think February of 21. So it, it, it was February. I've been working on it, um, that previous fall. And so being at home during COVID during that pandemic, definitely, I think that got me off the ledge to start doing some stuff because at the time the real estate market was shifting around, which is what I do. And so I had a lot more time on hand and, um, uh, um, came up with the name Southeast Whitetail. I know we had talked a minute ago about, you know, you're trying to, you know, if, if you're starting a business or an entity, you don't necessarily want to, you know, pigeonhole yourself into one type of demographic or, you know, or segment, but that's really all I know is the South. I mean, I, you know, I've hunted out of state, but um, I wanted to really to showcase um, what we're doing at the farm, but then really that um, uh, uh, show the South, yeah. try to get some, get some content out there for the Southeast, for the South in the hunting world, because, you know, per capita, we have a huge demographic of, of hunters down here. Um, and a lot of the hunting content that you see, there is a lot in the South, but most of it, especially for, for deer is, um, the Midwest or is the big buck stakes, Kansas, right. Iowa, you name it. And that's really what's what's selling. I mean, you know, what you see out there in the, the hunting world is that if it's not a 180-inch-plus deer, no one really seems to care about it. Right. Um, but um, there's a lot to celebrate on the southeast. And um, also want to showcase, you know, what I'm doing. And so um, I wanted to have something just more than just uh, a separate Instagram account, something more with some real content. So that's when I... Uh, I wrote an article about pine stand management um, and launched that first article with my website simultaneously. And that was the plan at the time is just to have some original articles um, about what I'm doing habitat wise, hunting strategies, everything like that wrapped up. Um, had some pretty cool feedback from that. And then um, my wife bought me this microphone that I'm talking into for Christmas because I had started to record some podcasts like with yourself. Yeah. Um, and I had this pod, I had this microphone and one day I just, just, I just decided just to record something by myself to see if I'd like it. 
and um, record a, a, a podcast uh, first kind of trial episode, just solo. I uh, liked it, and um, I've had a, a handful of guests on. It's not something that I'm doing weekly because I just can't do it content-wise, but I'm trying to get maybe one every two or three weeks out. Um, and um, the podcast episodes is something I, I very much enjoy interviewing people. Um, and so that's that's where I am right now with Southeast Whitetail. Yeah, no, that's incredible. And <clears throat> you mentioned, you know, a, a lot of times people are are very interested in like, you know, or if it's if it's not, you know, this this Booner style deer, uh, you know, people tend not to be interested. But I think that's kind of shifting a little bit. I think maybe sometimes we don't give uh, viewers and, and people enough credit um, because you know up to this point that's all we've ever seen. You know, if you turn to the outdoor channel or, or the sportsman's channel or anything like that. I mean, that's, that's what you're getting, right? You're getting those, those world-class deer in, in, in these States that, you know, are, are difficult to draw. Uh, if you have to draw or, or people just, you know, aren't afforded the luxury of being able to hunt those States and, you know, content like Southeast whitetail and, you know, what you're doing, uh, from a habitat, a conservation, a, a management standpoint, I think that is, is much more relatable and I think people actually enjoy seeing that stuff um, uh, a lot because while they're watching it in their back of their mind, they're saying to themselves, I can do this, you know, or, or this, his, this property is, is similar and has a lot of, uh, of the same features and characteristics of the land that I hunt or that I own, right? And they can see how you're, um, you know, managing it, you know, the success that you're having while managing it, and they can apply those things. And I think that's ultimately what what people kind of want is they want to to feel like what they're seeing, um, you know, whether it's on YouTube, Instagram, some type of social platform that they can duplicate. Right. Because there's a lot of times with, you know, the management side of things, it can be um, terribly overwhelming at first, you know, like especially if you have a big tract of land, it's like, okay, where do I even start? Right. And it's uh the more relatable the content is, I think um, the more well-received it is and, and the more people uh, would actually rather consume that type of information. Yeah, Marcus, I think it's spot on. I mean, if uh, I mean, if you if you read anything I've written or you hear me talk, um, I, you can it, it's obvious, you know, I'm not a I'm not a trained professional. You know, I, I didn't I'm not a biologist. Um, I don't have a wildlife uh, degree. And so, I mean, what I've learned is really just con- consuming everything I can, um, consuming, I mean, I'm a student of, uh, QDMA and the national deer association going back to the nineties. Um, I mean, I love that kind of content con- consuming stuff from like Mississippi state university, university of Florida, you know, any of those science database um, content and, um, and, I, you know, I, I think I can be relatable to a lot of average people because that's, that's what I am. And like when we started, when we first got the farm, I mean, we had no clue what, what we were doing yeah. and we made a lot of mistakes and it took a long, it took a long, long time to, to, um, to, you know, get where we are. And it, 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 it could have been done a lot quicker if we, if we knew what we were doing, but it just, it just took a long time. And so there, there's, um, I think a lot of people can, can relate to some of the stuff because, um, you know, like what you mentioned, there, there's some great content shows out there, and 
that's the business that they're in. I mean, they're in the content, the hunting content business and they need to kill for content. There's nothing wrong with that. It's great, you know, but, um, the average hunter or landowner or leasee that just doesn't, they can't relate to it because they're going like yourself, you know, you're going turkey hunt this weekend and this might be your only weekend you can hunt. So you've got to, you know, you're not, you got to hunt when you can and and you can't base it on weather or anything else like that. And so it's, there's a lot to celebrate, um, in the hunting side and in the habitat side, but even the hunting side, I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's, you know, what I look at it is that I, I, I try to target age over, you know, antlers or inches because I mean, you know, you, you might have a four-year-old buck that's, 140 inches or he might be under one, one, one And someone might not even want to shoot him, but, but why he's four years old. Yeah. Yeah. He's a, um, he's a mature buck. stuff like that, you know? Yeah. So it, it, it's cause you know, it's not apples and apples and what you're seeing a lot of these shows. I mean, these are, this is land that's, you know, manicured and, and managed to film for right. a TV show. Right. And not your average, um, you know, not your average hunter. Yeah, and I think that kind of all kind of ties in with, you know, the fact there or, or you know, the content that you're putting out. I mean, yeah, the the work and, and the time and everything that you're putting into to hunting and to land management, that's all kind of secondary. I mean, you, you mentioned you work in real estate first. So, I mean, it's not like you're getting paid to do these things, right? These are things that you just enjoy doing. Uh, the outdoors is something you're, you're passionate about. You know, anyone that's followed you on Instagram, you know, sees how much you like to get your kids involved in it, which I think is is great and teaching them, um, you know, about land management and, you know, uh, ethical hunting, uh, you know, just really kind of conservation in, as a whole. And it, it's things like that that I think are kind of fall back to that relatable topic that it's like, you know, he's, you know, Mark's working a, a regular job, you know, but he has time, you know, he prioritizes stuff to do on the farm and, you know, the habitat and, and the land management side of things. And, you know, if, heck, if Mark can do it, I can do it. Right. And that's, I think those are the kinds of things that, that really help spur uh, that drive in people who maybe, you know, weren't quite sure what to do or how to do it, or if they could even do it. That's right. I mean, and I can, I mean, I can write off a number of topics, um, as far as habitat and then wildlife conservation, um, topics that anyone can do. Yeah. And you don't necessarily have to, you don't have to have a, you don't need a tractor. You don't have to own land. I mean, you can have hunting, hunting rights or be a leasee. I mean, there, there's a lot that someone can do, um, across the board for habitat and wildlife conservation without having a lot of time. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. So as far as the podcast goes um, that you touched on, uh, I got a chance to listen to the episode last night with uh, Mike Nadusky uh, from Pheasants Forever. I've actually yeah. mm-hmm. I've talked to Mike a few times over the past couple of weeks uh, about some some stuff with Pheasants Forever, and uh, what a wealth of knowledge that guy is. I mean, just it's uh, it's really cool um, to see. I mean how kind of small, uh, that the circle, uh, or the, the outdoor family kind of is right. Um, and what have you enjoyed most, uh, about the podcast so far? Um, talking to people like Mike, um, I, I was able to meet, 
Mike is a super, super nice guy, super knowledgeable guy. I met him at uh, a hunt to eat, um, a, a mentor hunt we did um, fall of 20 with with Hunt to Eat. He came in, super great guy. Um, I, I tell you, I, what I like about podcasts is just interviewing people um, and trying to get content or not so much content, but trying to get information and answers out of people that uh, maybe I haven't heard them answer before. Yeah. I've had Mike on, um, Hunter Pruitt with National Wildlife Cooperative, and then Dr. Marcus Lashley, who um, is kind of like known as the prescribed fire. Um, he's Dr. Disturbance on Instagram. Um, and then Mike, Dr. Mike Chamberlain, who's the wild turkey doc. Um, just, you know, asking questions and getting answers out of these people that maybe I haven't heard them answer before on other podcasts. Um, and uh, that's... Um, and then also steering the conversation to fit what I'm doing, which is in the Southeast. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, that, that's, um, that's what I've enjoyed. Um, but I got to figure out how to grow the podcast, how to get people to listen to it. <laughs> you know, you're, you, 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 you record it, you put it out there. Um, but then you got to get people to find it. So that's the, that's the challenge. The right? crux of it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's kind of going back to what you mentioned earlier is, you know, sometimes, especially when you when you have a, a full time job, I mean, to, to be consistent with it uh, can be difficult. But I also think that as time goes on and you continue to put out episodes and you continue continue to to touch on relevant topics, especially as it pertains to the southeast there, the, the following will come. Right. And then. When that when that kind of comes as the the listenership and the viewers tend to go up, you're it's going to be a lot easier to to kind of track people down or to get them to come on the podcast because they've seen, you know, things that you've done, things that you've talked about, other guests that you've had on, and you know, people want to you know they want to be able to share their their knowledge, and that's I mean the the knowledge side of things is is what I've enjoyed most about the podcast is is talking to people who know more about things than I do. Um, because, mm-hmm. you know, it's, I like to just, I like to listen. Uh, a lot of times, you know, I, I consider myself fairly, a fairly social person, but if I get in settings um, where maybe I don't know a ton of people, I like to just listen, hear what people have to say. Um, I feel like you can really get a good understanding or uh, a better, yeah, just a good understanding of, of who someone is, kind of what they're about. If you just, you just take time to listen, you know, and I think that, Listening is such a, a key thing that us as a society need to do a lot more of in this day and age. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, listen, listen to experts. You're yeah. right. I mean, you know, yeah, I, and and that's why I mean, you know, I mean, I only know what I know, and uh, a lot of what I know is just from hard knocks and just trial and error. But I mean, I, I like take for instance, Mike. Uh, Nadusky, um, had him on talk about mostly, I mean, pretty much just talk about, uh, the Bob white quail and, um, you know, trying to, um, what we can do in the Southeast to promote, uh, that species. Cause it, it has been on the decline for a very, I mean, shoot, it's been a decline since the last quarter of, uh, I mean, probably the late seventies. Uh, but anyways, it doesn't get the attention that like wild turkeys are getting right now. Right. 
because they, they've been on on the, on the decline too. But you know, have have him talk about it. I mean, I, I could talk about some stuff that I know, but you know, why not get why why not get the expert on it? And, and and that uh, that's the side of the hunting industry that I just nerd out on is the like I mentioned before is the science base, the research. Um, that because I mean, I that's the kind of stuff, and I've mentioned that in my podcast before. It's like that's the kind of stuff that like it, it will you can you can use it on so many different areas of what you're trying to do, whether it's being a better land steward or conservationist or joining and spending more time or your money with the right conservation org or hunting. I mean, you can learn so much about being a better hunter by diving into that kind of content than you would about reading articles in magazines or like clickbait type yeah. stuff, you know, of, you know, like the, that classic uh, article where it's like, you know, it's, it's the summertime and, you know, it's summer 22 and there, and there's an article about these are the best, the top five days to kill a 200 inch buck based on the moon face for the upcoming <laughs> yeah. fall. And it's like, how in the world is that? I mean, there's just no, there's, there's no rhyme or reason to something like that. Yeah. Um, let's talk about, you know, once you read something about deer behavior, like learn what they do, learn yeah. what they do each phase of the season. And then that's how you're going to kill that big buck. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, there's, there's certainly a lot of, uh, I don't want to say misinformation, but not relevant at the time or maybe misleading, um, just to, to get yeah. people to read articles uh, click on your website or whatever. And yeah, I mean, there's, there's certainly tactics, uh, kind of strategies, uh, things that you can do to, to help increase your chances. Um, and, and those types of things I think are rooted, um, kind of in natural, you know, in this particular case, deer movement, um, you know, whether you're looking for, you know, ridges, you know, pinch points, things like that. I mean, these are, are well-documented, um, you know, things that you know strategies or tactics or, or land features that you can look for when when you're out there that you know it's not going to guarantee but it's it may increase your chances to to have encounters right i think that's 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 ultimately what it is because to say like this is you know these are the five best days to yeah like you said to to shoot a buck during the moon phase it's like well great i i that's monday through thursday and i'm working monday through thursday so what what good does that do me right Right. Yep. Yep. That, that, that's, yep. And, and that's a lot of how I hunt is just when I can. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I'm like you, I've, I've got a family, kids, and you just got to go when you can go. It doesn't matter how hot or cold it is. You just got to go. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and that's, I think a lot more people fall into that category um, than people who can just, you know, sit at home, say, okay, you know, big temperature drop tomorrow, pressure is going to be up you know, some fresh snow or a cold front or whatever, you know, kind of the, the things you tend to look for, especially, you know, you know, when the, when the ruts kind of, uh, on the, on the rise, it's like, well, that, I, I can't do anything. You know, I've, I can hunt Saturday and Sunday this month or this week. So doesn't matter what it's going to be. That's, that's when I'm going to be out there. And yeah, I mean, that's, uh, this, I mean, that's why it's called hunting and that's why I love it. You're right. That's spot on. So you kind of touched on the, uh, the hunt to eat camp, uh, that you guys hosted down on the farm. So 
<clears throat> kind of uh, tell me about that. How did that all kind of come about for you guys down there? Well, um, we we have been um, we've been um, over the course of owning the farm, going back to 2006. We've always um, invited a lot of guests to hunt. Um, and a lot of that is just, um, you know, growing up, we got invited to hunt, hunt a lot of places and, you know, we like to invite people to, and then also, you know, it's also a part of managing the deer herd. And, and that's, um, another just kind of sidebar, uh, difference down the Southeast is that when you have high deer densities, which, which a lot of the South does not every area, but most of the areas, which means that you've got to, you've got to, um, harvest a lot of deer, uh, yeah. depending on your density. So you can't just kind of casually hunt and, you know, hunt during the rut for bucks and then late season go and fill a couple doe tags. You've got to pretty sometimes aggressively get after does the entire season and that can take some work. So we, we've always invited guests to help us hunt and, and shoot some of the deer. And, um, you know, it wasn't something that we were trying to do or mission outright, but, after maybe 10 or so years of having the farm, we started to kind of look back and think about all the new hunters that had killed their first deer on our property. And I, it was kind of staggering that um, we were like close to 20 um, men and women that killed their first deer on our property that, you know, ranged from like 10. I think the youngest were, were some of my nieces and some of their friends that were, you know, 9, 10, and 11 and going up to, you know, 60-year-old men. Um, so kind of cross the board and, and split evenly between male and female. And, um, you know, the fall of 20, 2019, I wanted to um, kind of get out of my comfort zone and do something with our local um, NDA branch, uh, National, Deer Association, National Deer Association branch, and do uh, kind of a, a mentored hunt through that branch and invite some people that um, I didn't know you know, and, and try to find some people that wanted to hunt and learn. And we did that. And the, the following year, I, I wanted to do something a little bit bigger, you know, let's try to make this a little bit bigger. And I reached out to Jared Frazier at 2% for conservation. Um, and he uh, set me up and uh, introduced me to Motting uh, with Hunt and Eat. And uh, we uh, did a kind of a joint venture uh, mentored hunt and very much got out of my comfort zone um, because that, that we did that late September of 2020, which is a good time for us because um, uh, doe tags were out and we could start shooting does. And that was a that time of year is good for new hunters because um, we don't really hunt until September. And uh, I mean, I, I do some hunting in August, but we don't really put much pressure on the deer until September. And so it's a great time for hunters to see deer hunter, you know, deer observation. Mm -hmm. And if you're a new hunter, that's a good time to be in the woods. And, um, my team, um, him and he and his team put together and reached out and got some, uh, got four new hunters that were interested in, 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 in learning the ropes, so to speak. It was, uh, three women and one, one guy that came in and uh, my team brought some people down, one including Mike Nadusky and um, and uh, did kind of a little joint hosting. And um, it, it was phenomenal. Um, let's see, three out of the four new hunters harvested deer. Awesome. Uh, that fourth one did, 
Yeah, it was incredible. That fourth, um, that fourth hunter did take a shot, but she missed. Um, they all had a great time, and the hunt and eat crew did a phenomenal job on our rifle range, going over firearm safety. Um, I mean, it's just the full gamut, start to finish. Um, talk about you know firearm safety, shooting the rifle, getting comfortable with it, and uh, going out and hunting. And so it was that was a very re- rewarding weekend. Um, and it also very much got me out of, out of my comfort zone because I was that was really the first time that we'd opened up the farm to people that I had not met before. I had no mutual kind of real connection with. Right. And on top of that, even some of the hunt and eat people had not met each other in person yet. Okay. So there were a lot of different backgrounds and people were coming in from Colorado, uh, from the Northeast, from Florida, from Tennessee that had not met each other. And we were coming together um, at our place in our farmhouse and we did everything I think really the best way we could. I mean, that was, you know, of course, that was the fall of 20. So right in the height of COVID and we took some good measures. Everyone got tested um, before that weekend. Um, of course, the vaccine wasn't out yet. We got tested before. Some people did get tested afterwards and no one got sick. Um, and it was just a great, I, you couldn't have written um I think a better a better storyline for that weekend. One of the coolest stories was um, one of the hunters, uh, Ashley Vaughn's, if I have her name correct, she had shot a rifle, I think, for the first time that afternoon. Got used to it. It might have been like a 243 or 30-odd six. And got used to it. Excellent shot. And as a side note of, of you know introducing you hunters, I will say that females, without question, are – better students with firearm safety i mean they, they're they, probably they listen I mean, <laughs> yeah i've been telling my daughter my daughter's about to turn six and i've been telling her for a while that women females are just smaller, and they are and they learn quicker and they listen um but she was doing phenomenal rifle range and um in fact mike was her mentor okay mike Nadusky, if i have that yeah uh anyway so they were walking into um the stand and uh it was a a food plot field and they were walking in and it was a it was a it was a two-man um tower stand ladder stand i'm sorry not a ladder stand uh, a tower like i said but there was a you know a ladder going up to it and they were walking in and you know being late september deer are just used they're they're in that summer pattern and they're not used to hunters and so they were already deer out in that field when they walked in and uh it it, it was amazing that you know they snuck up the tower and actually propped up on one of the ladder rungs and uh shot and killed a doe instant i mean instantly um great shot ethical kill shot at 125 yards off a ladder rung which that ladder rung is, is maybe maybe a half inch wide. Yeah. And if anyone's out there, this rifle hunter, you know that just because you have, um, uh, a bar or something to rest your gun on does not mean that you're even, it, it doesn't mean you're going to be accurate because the gun's going up and down. Right. If you can't prop your, if you can't prop your trigger elbow, your trigger arm elbow up and rest it, that gun's going up and down. Yeah. And so, and she was just pumped. She was thrilled. And the hunt and eat crew, 
did a great job as far as um, uh, showing the showing the showing the new hunters, you know, how to butcher and, you know, everyone took home, everyone took home meat. And that was just, uh, it was, a, it was a phenomenal weekend. Oh, that's, at least. yeah, no, that's, that's incredible. And, you know, for, you know, you like yourself and, and your dad and, and the, you know, the other volunteers, I mean, that's, that's gotta be a really cool experience to share with, with someone, you know, with their, with their first harvest. Absolutely. Yeah. I, and it is. I mean, so I think right now, I think we're like at, at 21 or 22 new hunters that have killed the first year um, at our property since 2006. And, you know, every one of them did not continue to hunt. I, the majority of them did. But, you know, hunting, like a lot of things in life, uh, you might do it and you know, might realize it's just not something that you want to keep doing for whatever reason. Or maybe you just don't have time. You don't yeah. have time to do it, or maybe like playing golf more, fish more. But um, it, 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 it's something that a lot of people want to try, and especially a lot of our people that we, we've taken hunters, uh, most of them have been adults. Yeah. Um, and there have been some kids, but a lot of the kids we've taken have been either relatives we're related to or friends of friends. But, but with adults, you know, there's a lot of people in life that didn't grow up to hunt. They didn't, they just, they didn't have family members that hunted, but they would like to get into it. Or, um, you know, it's been a, quite a trend for, you know, well over a decade, probably close to two or three decades now as far as um, nutrition and like, where does your food come from? Mm -hmm. And then of course now with COVID and the pandemic and supply chain issues, there's been an in, in increase in push as far as wild game meat and you know as opposed to buying some of these inflated prices in the stores so there's a lot of people that want to do it but it's not like going out and getting a fishing pole and getting a fishing license and going somewhere to fish hunting is as you know is so much more of a daunting task yeah so um a lot of people want to do it or at least want to try it but it's i feel like a lot of adults it's harder for them to maybe engage with someone or they just don't even know where to start. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where, yeah, the, the recruitment side and it is certainly a, a very key thing for the, the continued success of, you know, of the hunting, um, you know, community. What is it that you enjoy so much about the hunter recruitment side of things? Um, it's very rewarding when someone kills their first deer or at least just seeing that excitement. I mean, maybe they didn't pull the trigger, but they went out and they saw some deer. Maybe they saw some fox squirrels or a turkey or something. Just that excitement and just um, uh, allowing people to enjoy our property and what we've done to it. Because, I mean, I, I definitely went through some phases phases in life, and I know there's been a lot of people write, you know, there's a lot of literature out there about phases, phases of hunters. Do so you go through that? different stages where you're just dead set on, you know, killing the most amount of deer or maybe trying to kill the biggest buck. And then at a certain point, it's not so much about what you're killing. It's maybe taking new hunters or the rewarding side to it. So, um, for me, it's just, um, you know, sharing what we've done and letting people enjoy, um, what we're doing. Um, and then it was also, quite frankly, it helps us out because we've, you know, we've got to manage the herd. We've got high densities and we need people to help us shoot deer. Yeah. Um, and, and then, and on top of that, 
we've been giving a lot of venison out to friends and family that want the meat. There's a lot of people out there that they want to try venison or they've had it and they want it, but they don't know how to get it yeah. or they don't what they don't really want to hunt. They, it's not in their wheelhouse. They don't mind wild game, but they don't, it's not for them to go out and kill. And there's a lot of people that if you ask them, they will gladly accept venison <laughs> and that can help you or anyone that maybe needs to harvest more deer, but the average family, I mean, what they can maybe eat three or four deer in a given year, um, maybe more, maybe less. And so that can help you if you need to take more deer to donate venison. Venison diplomacy, as you like to call it. That's right. And I, I did not coin that term, but, uh, uh, but you're right. That's it. So, Mark, in your opinion or, or kind of best estimation, you know, what do you think is the best way to attract new hunters, whether, you know, whitetail or otherwise? Um, well, I probably just, um, you know, ask people, put something out there. Um, I put stuff out before, um, when we were planning some of these hunt weekends, these mentor hunt weekends, I put something out on social media. Um, if anyone knows anyone that would like to hunt, um, I, I like I said, I, I did some things with, with my local national deer association branch. Uh, they might know some people reach out to, Hank Forrester, excuse me, Hank Forrester at NDA. Um, he heads up the field of fork there, and uh, he's got a, a list of people that would like to go hunt. Um, you know, engage with people, um, whether it's your church or your gym or your, your kid's school, and just talk to them. It, it, um, a lot of people are intrigued, I think, especially like what I mentioned, all those examples about why – wild game wild game is is getting some notoriety in in popularity as far as outside the hunting world um but it just like you said engage with people talk to them about what you do a lot of people find it fascinating you know the conservation side um if you're a non-hunter you know you you might there's definitely some stereotypes out there about hunters you know um, some bad stereotypes, good stereotypes, but I think people, people can be intrigued as far as the conservation side. And when they learn more about what we do, why we do it, why, you know, what we talked about earlier in this podcast, you know, turkey seasons, why they're shorter than that right now, you know, why the bag limits are lower, that kind of stuff. And not that we're just, cause if, if you didn't, if you're not, if you don't know about the hunting aspect I think a lot of the general public, they don't know, because it's not common knowledge, how can someone be a hunter and kill these animals, but then also be a conservationist? And you're so you're protecting them and you're trying to better the habitat, but you're killing them? You know, it, it, there's, I think when they learn the connection between the two, that can really, you know, get them to be on board with what we do and maybe want to join. Yeah, it's uh, it's having those conversations, right? I think that's, that's the the best way to really convey what it is we're doing, why it is that we're doing it, and the the benefits for you know the herd and the species in general for you know for what it is that we're doing in terms of of hunting and, and harvesting animals. That's right, absolutely. So, you know, we've 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 talked a lot about you know the the hunters that you've had on the farm and all of this. But as far as the, the land management side of things, um, 
on the farm. What has been kind of your, your biggest, you know, throughout, gosh, what, 15 years, 16 years that you guys have had the farm? What has been kind of your biggest aha moment uh, in terms of, you know, work that you're doing where you, the, the results or the impact is, is very apparent? Uh, it's very obvious. It's, it's almost a, a very quick um, realization that what you've done has, has, has worked uh, kind of the way you planned. I would say probably there's two different two different uh, periods that I probably had an aha moment. The first being the uh, the first timber work that we did. So our farm is, uh, is primarily a tree farm, um, loblolly and longleaf pine trees. So it, it's we're growing pine trees uh, to sell to a timber buyer for a timber mill for anywhere from. You know, the big trees might become telephone poles out on the highway, or they might become two by fours and wood you buy at Home Depot. And the smaller trees might be pulp wood, so paper towels, paper products, you know, uh, office paper, that kind of stuff. Um, so when someone talks about pine trees or, or pine farm, I mean, it, 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 it's a crop. Yeah. I mean, it's a long standing crop that you're growing for many decades, but that's exactly what it is. So the first forestry work we did you know thinning some pine trees and then clear cutting a section that was very overwhelming um because we didn't really know much about what was how the wildlife would take to it how they would use it a a clear cut i mean i was fearing that first clear cut because before i really knew anything about them it's like we're just going to take maybe 50 acres and just wipe everything out and it's going to be like a bomb went off and nothing's going to touch that for how many years that's what i was looking at but when you do that then you start to pay attention to what did that generate what kind of new life did that bring to the vegetation oh there's a pine thicket now because we because we replanted in pine trees and now that's an insane bedding thicket for deer and it's a hub for deer and then also turkeys are nesting in there those early years, that kind of stuff, seeing that uh, play out and then thinning the thinning some of the trees, opening the canopy, getting some sunlight in and learning about the natural vegetation growth. That was definitely an aha moment because before that, everything I knew was just food plots. Yeah. You know, food plots or maybe putting a feeder out or whatever and, and, and hunting over that destination food source, which is great, but there's so much more to it than that and then that second period i would say as far as an aha moment was which would be when i started to get off the permanent stands the food plots ag fields and started to hunt off in the woods hunt mobily just get off maybe find a good trail or whatever and just kind of winging it in the woods yeah and that's something that i would suggest if someone's trying to learn a property whether it's um of course private land but if it's public land, um, I know there's a lot of public land out west, Midwest. I was in Missouri for a couple of years, and the, and, the, and, the, and there's a lot of food plots and in ag fields on on public land. So when you get off those airs and you hunt the woods, you'll start to learn how deer use the land, that specific land. You know, not what you read in articles or TV shows, but that given land, you're observing them. You know how they move, where they're bedding. Um, 
And that was a big aha moment as far as how deer use our land. And then you can start to manipulate, which that might sound like a bad word, but you start to uh, change the habitat to better fit the deer population. You know, what do they need? What are they using? Right. Um, And then to blend the two, the forest and habitat work with the wildlife. And there's definitely a good blend that you can do um, with growing pine trees and then mixing good habitat uh, for wildlife. There's definitely a good, happy medium that you can do where it's not, you know, one extreme or the other. Yeah. And you're also a big uh, proponent of the prescribed burn as well. I've I've certainly noticed that, and it seems like you've had uh, a lot of uh, success with your prescribed burns as well. I do. I love it. I mean, it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's a lot of work, but it's a lot of fun. I mean, I'm maybe I'm maybe I'm a pyromaniac. I don't know, but um, it's uh, everyone loves fire. That's right. Yeah, everyone loves loves fire until you have a grease fire. And I've had some grease fires, and those those aren't uh, too fun. But but yes, I mean, it's there's different levels to it. But like one is just satisfying. I mean, it's almost like cutting the grass. Yeah, you know. Some people like to cut the grass because you get that instant satisfaction. You know, if you have a good clean burn, you got that instant gratification and then you can very, very quickly see the wildlife using it. It's a, as far as the bang for your buck cost wise, it's so much, uh, you get a lot more out of it than like planting a food plot. Um, it's also, it can usually cost a lot less, especially right now. I mean, right now the cost of seeds going up, fertilizer, chemicals, you name it, food plots are uh, going up in, in, uh, as far as the expenses. But it is something to not take lightly. Um, if you're going to do a prescribed fire, it's not rocket science. It's very a, very a very old management practice that I didn't know until you know not that long ago that Native Americans were using it on the landscape well before settlers came over from Europe. Um, but, you know, it, it's something that you – you need the right conditions and you need someone that's skilled that knows what they're doing. Um, but it's been, that's been a phenomenal management practice for us. Um, and it helps out with pine farmers because we get so much leaflet, yeah, uh, pine straw. Yeah. And when that pine straw builds up for a couple of years, it is a thick carpet. It gets matted down with rain. It gets pretty thick and there's very little popping up right. uh, from that. So if you're not burning, then you're going to need to have the food plots for sure, the destination food plots. But if you burn, uh, I mean, it's amazing. This kind of studies these universities are doing with these native plants that are coming up and the biomass and the protein levels, um, creating bedding and food for turkeys and quail and deer. It's, it's, um, it's pretty phenomenal what you can create. Yeah. So what's, what would be your one piece of advice for someone who, you know, maybe they just, um, you know, bought a piece of land, um, you know, kind of their, their dream, uh, piece of land for, for hunting and they want to, you know, they want to start managing that land. What it would be your, your, your one piece of advice for, for that person. Hmm. That's a good, that's a good question. Um, I would probably say, um, I would set realistic goals for your property, for your neighborhood, for your region in the country. 
figure out if if you're not familiar with that, um, try to do some research. Look at uh, I've heard Dr. Craig Harper talk about this with the University of Tennessee. Is look at look at the aerial uh, map of your, of your land at like a ten thousand foot elevation. Take a look at your neighbors. See what your neighbors see what's your neighbor's property. And then figure out what your property has in compared to your neighbors and um, um, just take it step by step and just have realistic goals. Um, when we first got our property, we were I was thinking that we should be seeing a lot bigger bucks than what we were. Um, I didn't really know because we were used to hunting different areas, uh, more of on the coastal plain, coastal South Carolina, coastal Georgia and coastal deer a lot smaller. They don't have the vegetation. They don't have the ag fields. Um, so they're not genetically bigger. I mean, the bodies are smaller. So, um, it, it took a couple of years to realize, you know, well, this is, this is what this air is growing. Um, this is what bucks are probably, um, what, what they're going to average out to be. And just, um, you know, enjoy your land for what it is and just take it step step by step and let it develop on its own because your property's ever changing it's always evolving and always changing and so um you know you you might have a plan that you want to do this and that to it but after a couple of years you might see oh well this area changed to something different maybe right. something better but just take it just take it you know step by step and there's there's a lot that people can do without putting a whole lot of time and money into a property. And I would say one of the bigger things is just to learn your, learn your property, like the back of your hand, walk it, walk it year round. You know, don't just walk it during deer season, look at it at different phases of the year and, and, and learn and pay attention to how wildlife uses it. And then what, you know, what's on your property that deer, quail or turkey, whatever use why are they using your property? And then maybe why are they not using it? It happens with turkeys all the time. You know, people have turkeys um, during the fall. They see turkeys during uh, the typical, you know, deer season in the fall. They come and they don't see them. Well, the, there are specific reasons why turkeys leave and go to different properties during the spring. Um, the same thing with whitetails. You know, pay attention, learn. Um learn the native uh, plant species because, you know, maybe you don't have the means or the space to plant food plots. Maybe, you know, you don't have um, open areas to plant. That's fine. Go off in the woods and get one of these free apps where you can take a photo of, of a plant yeah. that's been snipped off and, and, you know, learn what is that plant um, and, you know, learn what the deer are eating on your property uh, to better, you know, use it for hunting. Yeah, no, that's <clears throat> that's a great piece of advice too. And I think, and you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong here with with your experience that maybe people were from people who have have reached out about you know tips for land management and habitat improvement and all those things is you have to you have to look at it in the long term, right? I mean, food plots are are kind of a short term thing, right? Because you know they're you know yeah you might be able to plant some stuff that's going to help um, you know give deer. Uh, the nutrients for later in the season, especially once it becomes cold, but doing the improvements that are going to, you know, benefit the deer uh, for the next five years, as opposed to the next five months, I think is also approach that, um, that certainly needs to be looked at too, because, you know, it's, it's, 
it's almost like a, a subset of conservation in general where it's the long game, right? I think that's kind of the approach that, yeah. that you need to take and you can't um, get too discouraged if maybe you don't see, uh, you know, tremendous immediate results, you know, the following, you know, fall. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I, I um, we have a very long growing season in the South. I mean, I, I, our, I asked about snow a minute ago, but um, our growing season starts like the, like the end of February, first of March. Wow. Green ups happening. The turkeys are gobbling, and our first frost might be first second week in November. So, um, because of that, our landscape's ever changing, and um, you know, bedding. What's what's a good bedding site or nesting cover for turkeys right now in. Uh, you know, spring of 22 might not be good bedding and nesting cover two years from now. Yeah. So when you start to learn, that's why I said, like, get off in the woods, hunt mobily, hunt, you know, off destination food sources, learn how they move and how the different animals use your lamb. You'll understand, okay, so this is where they like to bed mostly. Well, is that bedding going to stay that dense and thick for ever? It's going to stay dense and thick for 10 years or, or are you going to lose that density uh, in the next two or three years, if that's the case, two or three years, then you need to create something or start to create something now so that there's a seamless transition. Yeah. And so when you're losing that one bedding site, uh, in five years, you start to create a new one. That's going to be a good bedding site. So there's a seamless transition, um, uh, for the wildlife. Yeah, no, no, that's, uh, that's a great, uh, a great approach, uh, a very, uh, proactive as opposed to reactive uh, approach to to those types of things. So, twenty twenty two, you know we're we're in turkey season. We're darn near. We're, by the time this releases, we'll be into May. We'll be almost at the halfway point of the year. You know, what does the year look like for you? You got any big plans or, or trips or out of state hunts or, or anything like that that uh, you kind of have on the docket or, or anything like that? No hunting trips playing right now. Um, I've um, just gearing up for the whitetail season coming up. Uh, our season opener starts in August for an, for an, an early velvet season, and uh, um, we did some did a good amount of, of a habitat work in, the, in this off season. Uh, we clear cut of a section, and so right now we are knee deep in food plots. Our warm season. Uh, food plots right now. We picked up some seed this week. We're trying to get some seed in the ground today, and that'll continue on for the next couple weeks. And um, trying to get those rocking and rolling um, um, uh, over the next couple of next month. And then, I mean, shoot, before we know it, we're going to have deer season here. So yeah. we got to start thinking about deer stands and we need to shift any stands around, adjust any. Because, you know, over time, um, you know, deer, they do get a lot more comfortable uh, during the off season. And then in, the, in those first couple of hunts of the season, you know, you, you will re-educate them. But they don't forget things. I mean, I, I don't – they don't forget, you know, deer stands and seeing a hunter in a stand that's just sitting there all year. So just thinking about adjustments like that. And um, uh, that's really about it. Yeah. Just – you know, hone in on the 
hone in on the season and we we've been really trying to fine-tune our deer density and our uh, buck to doe ratio so um i'm gonna hopefully try to do some observations as far as fawns our fawns will be dropping pretty soon and um that's really about it just kind of keep on doing what we're doing I, I don't get to hunt as much um out of state now they have two kids uh, but that's fine with me no complaints um um i'm very happy with the amount of hunting i get to do yeah and there's there'll be time for that right as as the kids get older uh and it uh it it, it becomes a a bit less on on your wife on your spouse uh to perhaps have to watch uh, both kids while, you know, maybe you head out West and, and do a hunt or, or go out of state and do a hunt. Uh, and you know, you know, I'm a, a parent of, of young, young kids too. And you want to soak up that time as much as possible when they're this age. Right. And yeah, you got to do what we can do and hunt yep. when you can. That's right. That's right. What about you? Do you have any trips planned? You know, I don't right now. Uh, I've been, I have a buddy who lives in Colorado uh, who's been asking me to come out and mule deer hunt with him for the past couple seasons. Um, he just hunts a, an over-the-counter tag. Um, so it'd be, you know, he said it'd be pretty easy for me to to get a tag for the unit that he hunts. Um, just kind of the same boat, right? It's with, with a couple of young kids, a three-year-old yeah. and a five-year-old. It's uh, it's difficult to, to pack up and leave for seven to ten days, uh, potentially. Um, but, you know, with, uh, you know, Go Hunt just launched this new Explorer membership um, for their mapping system this week. So I've I've been spending uh, a lot of time kind of scouting that area already uh, mm-hmm. in Colorado where he's at. So it's I don't know. I'm trying to put in some brownie points right now with the wife. Uh, preheat the oven a little bit, if you will, to to see if I can <laughs> buy myself some time uh, come September. So we'll see. Yeah, well now's the time to do it. Late spring, going to summer. Yeah, spend some spend some quality time with the family, and um, that sounds fun. You, you should definitely do it. Yeah, yeah. I'm hoping if you get so. a wild hair, you ought to come down to South Carolina and hunt with me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I know we talked take, about that last take time. Take a road trip. Yeah, I know we talked about that uh, last time, but no, it's uh, I keep it's I have not forgot it, and I've I'm just trying to play my cards uh, the best way possible over here. <laughs> yeah. So, Mark. Uh, Thank you again, man, for taking some time to join me today. It's been a pleasure as always. Um, you know, nothing but continued continued success with Southeast Whitetail, with everything that you're doing um, on the property down there and uh, on the farm. And uh, look forward to hopefully getting down there uh, sometime soon and, and obviously uh, staying in touch with you as well. Yeah, well, um, thanks, th- thanks for having me on. I mean, this has been a blast. And I'm very honored that you asked me to be on for the 100th episode of the average conservationist it's it's been a it's been a it's, it's been fun and quite frankly um doing that episode with you um back in you know late spring of 20 that was um that was of course a lot of a, a lot of fun for me and i was very um uh, glad and honored that you asked me to do it but also yeah, that that's the first podcast i'd ever recorded and um uh i didn't really know how i would like it or how that's not how I like it but how I would do on it but 
I got a lot of cool feedback from it and a lot of people that I knew that even weren't hunters listened to it. And then it, I, that definitely got me out of my comfort zone and kind of spurred me on to keep, um, doing what I'm doing and then also thinking outside the box, um, which led me to, you know, launching the website and my podcast with Southeast Whitetail without question. So I, I would like to thank you for that. That definitely, um, got me, um, out of my comfort zone, like I said, to, you know, do something because, um, you know, it's, I don't know how you felt launching a podcast, but it was, um, I kind of looked at it as it, or like even my website, it was like, why would someone want to go to my website? Why would someone want to read an article that I, that I, that I've read? Why would someone want to listen to me talk podcast? Now they might look at the guests and say, I don't want to listen to that guest. But, um, so it was, um, just me kind of, uh, you know, getting out there, doing something different, doing what I love and my, and, and, and doing what I'm passionate about. And then it's, and, 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 and what's, what's cool about it is, you know, meeting people like you, but then also getting that feedback from people, feedback that, uh, maybe people I know, or someone sent me a text message that, um, they've listened to a podcast and they thought it was great. I mean, that, that, that's, um, that's been a very cool, re rewarding side to it. So thank you for having me on and, um, pushing me, whether you realize it or not, <laughs> maybe you're the a catalyst for what I'm doing. I, I mean, I appreciate that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm glad that, uh, if, you know, our conversation two years ago kind of helped spur that, then, that's great because the, the, the information and the knowledge that you've gained over the last 15 years on the farm, um, you know, if that can be, you know, kind of disseminated to the masses to some degree and, and help, you know, someone else yep. in, in their journey, then it's absolutely worth it. So, no, keep doing what you're doing, Mark. And, uh, yeah, we'll talk to you soon, man. Take care of yourself. Awesome. Thanks, Marcus. Have a good weekend. Good All luck right. this weekend hunting. All right. Thanks, man. You too. All right. Thanks. Bye. All right. Well, thank you again to Mark uh, for taking some time to join me today. Uh, I would also like to thank the partners of the podcast, Wild Rivers Coffee, Stone Glacier, Go Hunt, as well as 2% for Conservation. Uh, and if you're interested in learning more about 2% for Conservation, you can visit their website, fishandwildlife.org. And over there, you can see all the certified brands uh, that have committed to conservation that you should support when you shop. I also encourage you guys to give 2% a follow on social media where it's going to be only positive conservation-driven content uh, that lands in your feeds. So again, if you'd like to learn more about 2% for Conservation, you can look for them online on social media or at fishandwildlife.org. Uh, thanks for joining me this week, everyone. You know, not just this week, but uh, you know, for the past almost two years, uh, episode 100 um, is kind of a milestone uh, in the podcasting world. Um, it can be uh, a long process, especially when you set out, um, you know, not knowing how long it's going to last or how long or how well it's going to be received. Um, but, you know, I just want to thank uh, everyone that's tuned in over the last, uh, again, couple of years. And uh, I really appreciate the support. And I hope that, um, you know, not only have you guys enjoyed the conversations uh, with the guests that we've had on, uh, but in many cases have, you know, taken something away from it, uh, kept you motivated um, <clears throat> as it pertains to the world of conservation and um you know stick around we've got some great stuff coming and uh i really appreciate all the support so until next week stay safe out there and remember conservation starts with you mm -hmm.